title of the message this morning is The Curse of Work. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26 is our text. These are the words of Solomon, and he is pinning these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what he says. I hated all my toil, which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet, he will be the master for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart for which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. but The word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Two main points on your outline this morning, a number of sub-points under each one. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to do so this morning. Write this down. We'll look first at the bitter truth. The bitter truth. And this comes to us in verses 18 through 23. Let me go ahead and give you number two so you can kind of see where we're going. We'll talk about the bitter truth and then drop about halfway down your outline there. Uh, number two, uh, you'll see the better truth. With the bitter truth and then the better truth. And we'll fill in those other points uh, as we journey through the text this morning. But the bitter truth is where we start. Write this down. A, you will leave everything that you worked for behind. That's the reality, friends. You will take nothing with you. Naked you came into this world and naked you will depart. From the dust of the ground you were made and formed and fashioned into the dust of the ground, you and I will each without exception return and you'll take nothing with you. You'll leave everything behind. Everything that you've worked for, everything that you've labored for, everything that you've toiled for, everything that you have strived after, everything that you've accumulated, everything that you have stored up, everything that your wealth has purchased, you'll leave all of it behind. You'll leave all of it behind. Look at verse 18 there. Solomon says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. I mean, Solomon's quest for purpose and fulfillment have led him down two dead-end roads to this point. The roads of wisdom and the road of pleasure have both failed to get Solomon to his intended destination. What is that intended destination? We've mentioned it in weeks past. Every single human being, without exception, wants to be happy. You want to be happy. I want to be happy. Everything you've done since you woke up this morning has been to the aim of trying to be happy. Perhaps you hit snooze once or twice this morning for a few fleeting extra minutes of sleep. 
That was because you thought it would make you happy. And you wiped your eyes as you walked down to the coffee maker and made yourself some coffee or some hot tea. Why did you do that? Because you thought it would make you happy. Perhaps you woke up a little bit earlier than the rest of your family so you could have a few moments of quiet before the chaos ensued. Why did you do that? Because you thought it would make you happy. From what you pulled out of the refrigerator this morning to the clothes that you adorned yourself with, to the words you've chosen, everything you've done this morning is to the aim of making yourself happy. That is the intended destination that Solomon has been seeking. But Solomon's not a quitter here. So he's, he's gone down two dead-end roads. Wisdom, dead end. Pleasure, hedonism, dead end. And Solomon's not a quitter. He's not ready to toss the towel in. He's, he's not just going to give up on the pursuit. What does he do? Well, he turns around and he backtracks. He walks back down the dead-end road to the, to the fork in the road, and he looks at the sign again. And he said, well, I, pleasure was that way, and wisdom was that way, and uh, uh, work. That's, that's the road we'll head down this time. And we'll see if maybe it gets us to uh, a different destination. And while this road, work, or labor, or toil, while it looks promising, it too will dead end with frustration and loss. I mean, just glance at the text here for a moment this morning. If you're a Bible writer inner, uh, or a highlighter, or a star-er, or, star-er, or a parenthesis-er, uh, whatever you are, uh, maybe you're not a Bible writer inner. Uh, so just take mental note if that's the case. But I just want you to look at the words that Solomon uses to describe his work in this passage. You find words like this. Hated. Hated it. Not just didn't like it, hated it. Uh, He uses words like vanity, despair, great evil, sorrow, vexation, which is like frustration and anger all swirled together. Vexation. Just kind of rolls off the tongue. Vexation. Restless, he says, striving after the wind. I mean, these are the, the terms that Solomon uses to describe his work under the sun. Why did Solomon end up in despair? Solomon ended up hating his work because he tried to make a good thing an ultimate thing. That's the problem that many of us encounter in life under the sun, is that we ask of good things to become ultimate. We try to extract out of the temporal something eternal, and it leaves us frustrated, like a striving after the wind. Solomon tried to extract out of work something that work was never intended, nor can it ever provide. Solomon made an idol out of work, just as he made an idol out of wisdom and pleasure. Perhaps some of you this morning have made an idol out of work. Listen to me, dads, and it's not confined to the husbands, the fathers, the males in here, but just listen to me for a second. Don't don't make an idol out of your work. Don't, Don't forsake that which is of far greater importance for work. Don't forsake your family. Don't forsake loving your children. Better to have less in the bank account. Better to have less uh, accumulated in your barns. Better to have uh, less assets that have your name attached to them and to love your family well than to give yourself hook, line, and sinker to work and come up for a breath in your mid-50s or so, mid-60s, and figure out what you lost to gain it. Don't do it. I'll do it. Yes, work. Work hard. Not as working for men, but working for the Lord. 
Don't exchange what is of greater importance for work. Don't make an idol out of work. Solomon thought that work would provide dividends of happiness, but ultimately it only paid in heartache and pain. The very thing that Solomon thought would fill him only left him empty-hearted, empty-handed, and frustrated. Vexed. He was vexed. It's interesting to note that when we discover that our idols are like sandcastles built at low tide, which at some point in time, we, we come to that realization. We, we realize, oh, this idol, this thing that I've given my life to, whether it's uh, wisdom or pleasure or work or fill in the blank for you, when we realize that that idol is nothing more than a sandcastle built at low tide, oftentimes our distaste for that idol usually matches our previous devotion. Did you catch what all I'm saying there is where we once loved and ran after and pursued and gave our all to the idol when we realize that it's Havel, like a mist that appears and then quickly vanishes. When we realize that it's like a puff of wind, a breath, a, a, a mere vapor, then oftentimes we turn and with the same amount of energy we now are embittered at that idol where we used to love and enjoy it, to be devoted to it. When we realize that we've been duped by our idols, empty promises, bitterness oftentimes replaces their once sweet taste. And I think that's exactly where Solomon is in the text this morning. He realizes that what he has given his life to has only paid him in dividends of frustration, heartache, and pain. I mean, this is Solomon as he stands looking at himself in the mirror this morning. Look at verse uh, uh, 18 there. And actually, if you back up, if you just let your eyes bounce back up to verse 17, which is where we ended last week, Solomon ended verse 17 saying that he hated life. Life under the sun had been grievous to him. He, he felt a definite itch, and we all do, okay? We, we all feel this definite itch of wanting to be satisfied, wanting to be happy, wanting to be comfortable. It's this itch that we all feel. But despite all the scratching that Solomon could give that itch, the itch never went away. It was never relieved. And so now Solomon not only hates life, but he hates his toil. Amal is the Hebrew word there. He hates his work. He hates his labor. Amal there, work or labor. Uh, it, it has the idea of, uh, of your, your daily activities, just what you're engaged in, what's, what's on the agenda today. That's your work, your labor, your, your toil. I mean, Solomon had certainly worked hard for uh, what he had during his earthly reign. Solomon was a hard worker. He wouldn't have been able to achieve all the spectacular accomplishments that we studied in weeks past that his reign had produced without working long hours and without putting in or exerting great energy and effort. But Solomon had come to hate all the labor that had been required to, to build the empire that was in front of him. He began to hate all the, all the projects that he constructed. He began to, to hate all the, all the wisdom that was involved in the decision-making, all of his great wealth, all of his lavish entertainment. Solomon began to hate those things. Those are things that hadn't come easy for Solomon. I mean, Solomon, yes, he was, he was wiser than any man had ever been. He was richer, for, or richer than any man had been. But he still had to work. He still had to work. 
All this consumed Solomon's life. And now at the end of the day, left him unsatisfied, discontent, and even lonely. I mean, here's the reality, friends. Many people, perhaps some of us this morning, expect work to give them a sense of purpose in life. You expect work, you expect what you do to give you a sense of purpose or a sense of significance. Dare we say a sense of meaning in life. Uh, Perhaps that explains why one of the first things that we oftentimes ask people when we meet them is, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? Friends, let me tell you that work is the wrong place to try to extract significance from. It's the wrong place to try to extract a purpose or meaning from. As I think about the reality that we'll take nothing out of this world, I'm reminded of Jesus' warning in the parable of the rich fool. Maybe you can just write this text out in the margin there. You can look at it later. Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Luke 12, 15 through 21. Jesus says there, he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let me just stop right there. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But we try so vigorously to do so. We try to find life in our possessions. We try to find life in the material things of this world. Jesus goes on, and when he had told them this parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And that rich man thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I've got so much. I mean, I've got a surplus. I've got an abundance. And I don't even want to put it all. And so he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. Implication there, I'll tear down my smaller barns. Because he goes on to say, And I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods. Laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this very night your soul is required, and the things that you have prepared for yourself, whose will they be? In other words, someone else will get them. Someone else will get them. Everything you've worked for, everything you've labored for, everything that you've toiled for, Everything that you've given your blood, sweat, and tears for, not only can you not take it with you, but someone else will be the owner of it when you're gone. Don't try to extract out of work significance. I'm not devaluing work. God doesn't devalue work. We'll talk about that toward the end of the message here this morning. But don't try to extract out of it what it was never intended, nor can it provide for you. You'll be left empty-hearted and empty-handed every single time if that is the case. We know that frustration in work can ultimately be traced back to the garden, right? Genesis chapter 1 through 3. After God created Adam, he entrusted Adam with the job of taking care of, uh, toiling uh, to till the soil and tending to the diverse animal kingdom that God had uh, created for his glory, the diverse uh, uh, animal uh, uh, kingdom that God had created there. But tragedy struck. We all know the story, right? Adam and Eve, they weren't content with their lot in life, and they reached out and started grasping for things, which is oftentimes what we do, right? 
We're we're, we're frantically searching for significance, purpose, meaning, something to identify me. And so we we grasp. Uh, Any any parents in here uh, have or have had the, the old game, Hungry, Hungry Hippo? I mean, I can remember growing up, it's like... Like, you're not even watching the game. All your focus is on the dumb little lever. You know, and the hippo is just out and back, out and back, out and back, out and back. And the whole purpose of the game is to see who gets the most marbles at the end. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. You got all the marbles. How long is that happiness going to last for you? It's not. And if you take the game of Hungry, Hungry Hippo and you just extrapolate it over to life, which is ultimately, like, like we, we, we seem to think, oh, we're adults, we've grown up. No, we're just playing a bigger game of Hungry, Hungry Hippo. <laughs> Striving, grasping, reaching for, tr- trying, trying to find something that will do it, that will fill me up at the end of the day. And sometimes we're smart enough that we get to the end of the road and we're like, oh, dead end. And so we turn around and we backtrack to the Y again. And we look at the, at the signpost there and we think, ah, oh, the cruise, ah, oh, the promotion, ah, oh, the new car. I just fill in the whatever it is. And so we just start trekking down another road. Adam and Eve weren't content with their lot in life. They grasped for independence. They pursued selfish satisfaction And the fruit that God had clearly forbidden, believing that God was dealing with them in an underhanded manner, they rebelled and they found themselves plunged beneath a curse. And a part of that curse was now that work would be tough. Work would be tough. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. This kind of sounds like uh, Solomon here, right? All the days of your life. Solomon would have put vain in front of that. All the days of your vain life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for, or from the dust you shall return. Work. Work. Frustration in work. Toil in work. can all be traced back to the curse. Friends, here's what I want you to know. You'll leave behind everything that you worked for. Write this down, number two. You'll leave everything that you worked for to someone else. To someone else. Look at verse 19 there. Solomon says, and who knows? He's picking up on his end thought from verse 18 there. And who knows whether the person who gets all my stuff will be wise or a fool, yet he will be the master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. I mean, what Solomon began to see here was that there was nothing that he could do to secure his work. There was nothing he could do to guarantee his work's permanence. A part of what makes life under the sun so frustrating at times is that we long for lives of permanence in a world of constant change, and we strive to achieve it. So, you got two hands here, okay? Let me just illustrate it so you understand here a little better. Uh, In one hand, we all carry around this desire for permanence in a life of constant change, something that will remain the same, something that isn't Havel, 
here and then quickly gone. We all strive for permanence, want permanence in a world of constant change. But at the same time, we long for change in a world of permanent repetition. I mean, that's, that's what Solomon was saying back in, in chapter 1. It's like, man, the, the, the sun, you know, east to west, east to west, east to west every day. And the water, it all runs to the ocean, evaporates, comes and condensates and runs down to the ocean, evaporates, rises, condensates. And so we see change, although it's not eternal change, we see change in nature and in the created order, but yet man's life is like that big merry-go-round and, and we're all going to get off at the same point that we got on because there's no ultimate change. And so we live life under the sun. Part of what makes life so frustrating is that we both long for permanence and change at the same time. But nothing's permanent and nothing ultimately changes. How's that for encouraging? Okay, we can close our Bibles now. Let's go home. Why? Why? So that we don't get too attached to the things of this world. So that we don't wed ourselves to life under the sun. That frustration, that discouragement, that delusion, that despair, that feeling of Havel, meaninglessness, purposelessness, insignificance, is there so that we turn to view another world that is above the sun. C.S. Lewis, if I find within myself desires in which this world cannot satisfy, the only probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for another world. The reality under the sun is that neither permanence nor change, lasting change, are ultimately attainable. And so Solomon comes to the conclusion here that sooner or later, the power, the prominence, the prestige that, that he had, that he currently possessed, it would all slip through his fingers. And not only would it slip through his fingers, but it would be taken over by someone else. Someone else would, would take on his work. All of his work was like chasing after the wind. I mean, leaving it all behind is bad enough, but there's another problem with work, and that's, again, that your work will ultimately become someone else's reward. Everything that you've worked for will ultimately, in the end, become someone else's reward. And for Solomon, the more he toiled at life's work, the more galling was the thought of its fruits falling into other hands. And we can never really be sure what will happen after we die. Pause. I have that sentence written in my notes here. Let me qualify that. We can be ultimately sure what will happen after we die. And the Bible tells us the end of the story. Uh, the point that I'm trying to make is we can never be ultimately sure what will happen with our possessions after we die. Okay, some, someone else will get them. Matter of fact, Solomon says here, this phrase, look at your Bible, he says, who knows? Who knows what, who will get it? Who knows whose hands it will end up in? And this little phrase here actually invites a negative response. The reality is that you and I can spend our entire lives gathering Gathering a collection, building businesses, making a home, assuming a, a fortune. But you can't take it with you. Maybe you will lose it when you die. Maybe this loss will happen sooner. Who, who knows what will happen? The Lord knows. In his heart, a man plans his, 
his uh, steps, but the Lord determines his course. But either way, eventually, your collection will go to a dealer. The contents of your home will be sold at auction. Someone else will manage your portfolio, and everything that you have worked a lifetime to gain will be gone. It'll be gone, and likely into someone else's hands. This is bitter. This is bitter. Write this down. See here. You'll be dissatisfied if you seek ultimate purpose in a material world. I won't belabor this point. I've already mentioned this thoroughly, but you'll be dissatisfied if you seek ultimate purpose in a material world. Look at verse 20 there in your Bible. Solomon says, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair, over to the toil of my labors under the sun. This is an abyss of despair at the end of the road. I mean, it's like a chasm, a chasm of frustration. The Hebrew in verse 20 can actually be translated, I allowed my heart to despair. I mean, I just gave my heart over to it. I just let my heart go into full bore, push all the chips forward, despair, I'm all in. Solomon was trying to put a round peg in a square hole. And it left him without hope. Let me illustrate Solomon's problem here for us. Uh, think about the created order. Think about the, 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 the many creatures that God has created. Think specifically about the cow and the lion. Okay, God created the animal kingdom. And as a part of that kingdom, he created the cow and the lion. The cow feeds on grass. The lion is nourished by meat. And you can feed a cow meat all day long and it will starve to death. And you can feed the lion grass all day long, and he will die. See, God created man initially as a spiritual being, and to be satisfied only and fully and completely on him, on spiritual things, not material things. And the material things are like the grass to the lion and the meat to the cow. You'll never be satisfied if you try to substitute material things for what you've ultimately been designed to enjoy. You'll never be satisfied. You'll always be wanting. You'll just keep banging the lever on the grown-up game of Hungry Hungry Hippo. You'll be dissatisfied if you seek ultimate purpose in a material world. D, look at verse 21 there. The one who doesn't work still seems to profit. Well, this is frustrating. The one who doesn't work still seems to gain in the end, still seems to come out ahead, still seems to win in the end. Look at verse 21 there. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill, Solomon's pointing back to himself there. I've had wisdom, I've had knowledge, I've had skill, but I must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it, who did not work for it, who did not earn it, and who has no investment or skin in the game, yet they get it all. They get it all. Solomon concludes verse 21, this also is vanity and a great evil. Solomon struggles with the fact that while one person works hard, the other person gets the reward. It was an injustice that he just couldn't seem to reconcile in his heart and his mind. I think when Solomon mentions wisdom and knowledge and skill, he's referencing all those great works that his hand had done back in verses 4 through 9. Those are the houses, the vineyards, the gardens, the parks, the tree groves, the pools, and the like. 
And Solomon says, my, my wisdom, my, my understanding, my knowledge, my skill has, has built all those things. Somebody else is going to be the ultimate overseer and owner. When Solomon died, all of his wealth was left to his eldest son, Rehoboam. And suffice it to say, Rehoboam was not as savvy as his father was. As a matter of fact, he was such a fool that he lost about 80% of Solomon's kingdom. If you want to read the story later, you can, uh, can read 1 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 12, or 2 Chronicles chapter 10. And you can find out a little bit more about Rehoboam. Just a summary of the story here. Uh, Rehoboam received a a reasonable request from the men of his nation for lower taxes and a a less drafted labor because the people were exhausted, the people were, were tired, the people were weary from living and laboring under the heavy burdens that Solomon had put on them. And so Rehoboam received counsel from the elder statesmen in the land who urged him to comply with the request of the people. But instead... Instead, Rehoboam listened to the inexperienced young men who had grown up with him and in compliance to their advice, responded to the people with force and threat. He told the people that he was not going to expect less of them. Instead, he was going to demand more. And as a result, the northern ten tribes of the nation rebelled and were never again reconciled with Solomon's tribe of Judah until they were carried into Assyrian captivity. It's a pretty sad, dismal story. A whole lot more detail there you can... Check out later in 1 Kings 12 and 2 Chronicles chapter 10. Bottom line here is that we are all, every single one of us, are uh, inbuilt with a longing to have something, to make something, to do something that will last, that will have permanence, that will endure. But the under the sun reality is that we will end up spending our whole lives working to gain something that we simply cannot keep. What's the answer to this? Well, Solomon says it's a vanity and it's a great answer, or a great evil, rather. Only the gospel gives us a satisfying answer, as a matter of fact. I think about 1 Corinthians 15, 58, uh, where Paul says, your labor in the Lord is not what? It's not in vain. That's the difference. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Will last. Look at E there. Your work will pay dividends of sorrow, frustration, and weariness. Your work will pay all right. It'll provide. It'll provide dividends of sorrow, frustration, and weariness. Look at verses 22 and 23. Solomon writes this. For what has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation, frustrating, angering. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is a vanity. This is a vanity. Instead of finding security in the expansion of his business and the financial success that followed, Solomon experienced anxiety and insomnia. I mean, Solomon was wound up tighter than an eight-day clock, and he couldn't even sleep. He couldn't even sleep. Instead of being satisfied with what he accomplished, he frantically worked more and more and more to try to secure what he had already achieved. 
I mean, you think about it, friends. If, if we give everything that we have, if we hedge all of our bets on the fact that work will provide for us ultimate uh, significance and purpose and meaning, and we give all of our years and all of our days and all of our moments, all of our hours to that, then we will fight uh, to the death to try to protect the very thing we've given our life to. And it's wearying. It's tiresome. When you make an idol of anything, you'll spend every waking moment trying to protect what you've earned. And that'll leave you incredibly sorrowful, frustrated, and weary. Ask anyone how they're doing these days, and the most frequent response will be some form of busy or tired. Busy or tired. I mean, I, I say that. How are things going? Busy, but good. It's like standard question, standard answer. And I, I'm not negating the fact that we're not busy. I think oftentimes we, we uh, fool ourselves into thinking that we are more busy than we actually are because we get some sort of temporal significance out of being busy and running around like a rat. Busy and tired. We all feel that there is somehow less time than there once was to satisfy the feverish need we all have to fill every hour of every day with measurable tasks and accomplishments. I just don't have the time to do everything that I need to do. No, you're trying to do too much and you're asking of what you do to provide what it can never provide. The result, you feel the way you do. And I feel the way I do. If we seek ultimate satisfaction and purpose in our work, we'll soon discover that it's a jungle out there. I mean, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Ask any businessman or businesswoman. It's a dog-eat-dog world. One day you're devouring your competitor, the next day you're being devoured. And again, here's, I don't want to devalue work. God created work. God created work. You were not, on the other hand, created to find significance in your work. There is a massive difference there. Again, to ask of work to provide for you ultimate joy and satisfaction is to ask of work something that it cannot and was never intended to provide. And in the end, you'll just grind yourself to a, per to a pulp and you'll work yourself to death if that's what you try. If that's what you try. Well, let's talk about the better truth here for just a few moments. We saw the bitter truth there. You'll leave everything behind. You'll leave everything behind to someone else. You'll be dissatisfied if you seek ultimate satisfaction in a material world. Uh, you just need to know that someone's going to come after you that's going to uh, be the recipient of all that you worked for. They're going to get the reward of all your work. Uh, and at the end, yes, work will pay you. The check will come in the form of sorrow, frustration, and weariness if, if your ultimate aim in work is to try to extract from it what God never intended for it to provide for you, which is ultimate significance. So let's talk about the better truth here for just a few seconds. Verses 24 and 26 bring chapter 2 to a close. Write this down, A here. Work brings great joy when we work to the glory of God. Yeah, there's great joy in work. When we work to the glory of God. Look at verses 24 through 26a here. Solomon writes, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? 
For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Wisdom and knowledge and joy. There is an oasis of optimism in an otherwise wilderness of despair in these two verses. And Solomon's perspective changes right here. And so I think what Solomon is, is doing here is he's, he's, he's traveled down, he's journeyed down the road of wisdom and understanding, be, be, becoming the academic. And he realized that didn't do the trick. And so he backtracked to the, uh, to, to, to the sign. And he decided, oh, pleasure, I'll try that road. And that road ended up leaving him empty. And so he backtracked to the sign and he tried the, uh, the road of work and he has figured out that that also is vanity, is striving after the wind. And so for the first time here, Solomon has a glimmer of God perspective that has not been present to this point. For the first time, Solomon isn't seizing something for himself, but he's receiving something for God, from God. Again, it's, it's, it's not the grown-up game of hungry, hungry hippo. It's the I'm receiving something that is good from God. What brings joy? Isn't it interesting to note that Solomon mentions several things here in verses 24 through 26 that he has otherwise previously pronounced as Havel? Did you catch that? Solomon mentions several things here. Eating. Drinking, enjoying your work, these are things that Solomon has previous, previously condemned and said, these are havel, these are like a mere breath, fleeting. And Solomon previously had quite a different perspective concerning eating, drinking, and the enjoyment in his toil. And so how did Solomon bounce from vanity to happy enjoyment? I mean, how, how did Solomon turn the page here from, from vexation? Everything is, is worthless, useless, like a striving after the wind to, to now there is a happy enjoyment. Well, the answer is that Solomon's Godward focus reorients his perspective. Solomon introduces God into the equation here in verses 24 through 26, and it changes his perspective. Changes his perspective on where joy comes from. Friends, endless joy does not come in a box with your iPhone. If it did, you wouldn't be considering an upgrade. That's not where endless enjoyment comes from. Enjoyment isn't automatically a part of intimacy. It doesn't come from a key ring to a new house. It doesn't ride with you in the passenger seat of a new car. It doesn't share an office with you at your new job. It does not live inside of an ATM. That is not where endless enjoyment resides. We all know what it's like to have tasted the best that life has to offer and still be wondering what comes next. What, that was exciting, but what now? If you're having trouble finding enjoyment in life, it's very possible that God's not at the center of it. If we find ourselves deeply dissatisfied, it's very possible that we've been asking of good things to be ultimate things. Earthly pleasures are a gift from God, but they have definite limits. They can and should be enjoyed, but they can never give us lasting satisfaction. Paul instructed Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he said this, he said, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. 
enjoy that which God has created, but receive it with thanksgiving instead of striving after it and expecting it to give you what God never intended it to give you. Ray Steadman once said, isn't it strange that the more you run after life, panting after every pleasure, the less you find, but the moment that you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in thankful gratitude and delight, the more, the more it seems to provide. And so you have this compulsive worker uh, here in the text, Solomon, just working and working and working and building and building and building. I mean, he's just, he's putting together an empire here. He's overloading his days with toil and his nights with worry. And in the process, he has missed the simple joys that God is holding out for him. The very toil that tyrannized him was potentially a joyful gift of God if he had the grace to receive it as such. I mean, here is the other side of the unhappy business that God has given to the sons of man. You see, rightly used, the basic things of life, food and drink and work, these are good things. These are good things. God created them. What spoils them is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give. I mean, work is good because it's an expression of the image of God. I mean, think about it for just a moment. Work is good because it's an expression of the image of God. Man was made to work because God made him as a working God. God is a worker. And then he rested. And he's made us in his image. And he's given us work to do. We were created. We were made to be creative, to use our minds and our hands It's a part of what it means to be made in God's image. Work is good because it's an expression of the image of God. Work is good because it's an expression of God's love. Right? What are we doing? How are we working to love our neighbor as ourself? Work can be an expression of the love of God. If it's understood and pursued to that end. And then lastly, work is good because it's an expression of worship. It's an expression of the image of God, it's an expression of love, and it's an expression of worship. These are familiar words to us. Whatever you do, work heartily as working for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. Okay, Don't seek your reward from the work. Work as though working for the Lord, not for men, and your inheritance will be given by him later. You see the difference? One will leave you joyful, the other will leave you vexed frustrated, disillusioned, disheartened, empty-handed, and empty-hearted. B, lastly here, if you climb the ladder of success, you'll soon find out that it's leaning against the wrong wall. Look at verse 26b here. But to the sinner, he, God, has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. I mean, there's only two distinctions when it comes to the sons of Adam. There are those who please God. There are those uh, who rest under the awful load of their guilt and sin. Those who please God are grateful recipients of his wisdom and knowledge and joy. To the unrepentant sinner, on the other hand, though, there is no gain. There is no profit. There is no ultimate reward. The unrepentant sinner experiences none of the spiritual blessings that God loves to give that are connected to work, at least. 
Yes, the sun rises and the rain falls on both the righteous and on the unrighteous. Even the unrepentant sinner is the recipient of those graces. The unrepentant sinner, the only thing that he will gain in the end is the experience of loss. If a person's life is consumed by the acquisition and accumulation of consumer goods, then that person has absolutely nothing other than their materialistic wealth at the end of the day to show for their labors, and eventually they'll leave it all behind. They'll take nothing with them, and condemnation waits at the end of the road. You see, the sinner can heap up all kinds of riches, but he or she can never truly enjoy them because they've left God out of the equation. They're trying to extract what only God can give out of a material world. Matter of fact, Solomon says that oftentimes the unrighteous end up giving their possessions to the righteous. I don't, I don't exactly know how all that works out. And it isn't always the case. We certainly know that. But somehow God does make this happen. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 here says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Interesting. That's interesting. The point that Solomon is trying to make here is that apart from God, there can be no true enjoyment of the blessings of life, not even of work. Not even of work. You know, it's been said that it's good to have the things that money can buy, provided that you don't lose the things that money cannot buy. Don't lose the things that money cannot buy. Jesus said that in other words when he said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his very soul? Let me conclude this morning with a, with a poem penned by John Newton. I love John Newton. And I think this poem here expresses the grasping after, the, 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 the seeking after an, an autonomous life, trying to live life apart from God, trying to find happiness without God. Listen to Newton's words here. He says, My waking dreams are best concealed. Much folly, little good, they yield. But now and then I gain when sleeping a friendly hint that's worth the keeping. Lately I dreamt of one who cried, beware of self, beware of pride. When you are prone to build a babel, recall to mind this little fable. Once upon a time a paper kite was mounted to a wondrous height where giddy with its elevation it thus expressed self-admiration. See how yon crowds of gazing people admire my flight above the steeple. How they would wonder if they knew all that a kite like me can do. Were I but free, I would take a flight and pierce the clouds beyond their sight. But ah, like a poor prisoner bound, my string confines me to the ground. I'd brave the eagle's towering wing, might I but fly without a string. It tugged and pulled, while thus it spoke, to break the string, at last it broke. Deprived at once of all its stay, in vain it tried to soar away. Unable its own weight to bear, it fluttered downward through all the air. Unable its own course to guide, the winds soon plunged it in the tide. Ah, foolish kite, thou hast no wing. How couldst thou fly 
without a string. My heart replied, O Lord, I see how much this kite resembles me. Forgetful that by thee I stand, impatient of thy ruling hand. How oft I've wished to break the lines thy wisdom for my lot assigns. How oft indulged a vain desire for something more or something higher. And but for grace and love divine, a fall thus dreadful had been mine. Don't try to fly without being connected to the string. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Such wisdom here. Help us to find enjoyment, pleasure, satisfaction, happiness uh, in who you are and who you have made us to be. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and not the material things of this world. We know, we know that if we try to extract out of a material world what only you can give, we'll be left empty-hearted and empty-handed. I pray if there's a person here this morning who doesn't know Jesus savingly, who's been trying to extract out of this world uh, significance and joy and pleasure and happiness and purpose, Lord, that you would help them to see the vanity of their pursuit, the emptiness of their pursuit, and that they would turn from their sin. It is sin. It's not just a mistake. It's not just going down the wrong road. It's not just trying to fly without the string attached. It is sin. And sin creates a chasm between ourselves and a thrice holy God. Lord, we thank you that you threw your son into that chasm for us, that you crushed him on Calvary's tree for our sin and the guilt and the shame that ensues as a result. Pray that you would cause every heart this morning to cling tightly to the cross and to receive the mercy and the grace that we find there. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.